This is a Soulfire production. Hey, everybody. Today is a really special episode with my dear friend and business partner, Morgan Martin, her father, Mike Martin, and myself and my father, Randy Holloway. Uh, Morgan and I were chatting um, with everything going on here in the world and living currently in Chicago, um, one of the most segregated cities in the world. We thought it would be cool to bring our fathers together because both of us uh, last week got to spend some one-on-one time with our fathers and just have some really cool conversations about how they grew up, what they um, witnessed, their experiences, what they um, barriers that they broke for their families, what they overcame to give both Morgan and myself the lives that we have today. So Morgan and I were talking earlier this week and we're like, man, let's just have them on a podcast and share the love and the wisdom that they have and really see if they can offer anything to any listeners out there um, on how we can come together, how we can come from a more loving and compassionate space and how potentially love and fatherhood could be the answer to everything that we have going on today. So that's what we talked about. You guys are going to get to hear from both my father on his upbringing um, and the life that he's created for my brother and myself. Mike Martin, his upbringing and the life that he has built for his family. Uh, They coincidentally both grew up with very little and created beautiful lives. They both went to University of Illinois, both had daughters at the same time, sons at the same time, and have been married for over 35 years, both of them, which is pretty incredible. So uh, when it comes to leadership, mentorship, and for sure fatherhood, they are two people that I respect and look up to dearly. So excited for you to hear their stories, their thoughts on and answers on race in America today and how we can come together and how simply uh, we can learn to be more compassionate, loving, and be more present. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Here we go. Welcome, everybody. We are here with Morgan Martin, her father, Mike Martin, and my father, Randy Holloway. So excited for you guys to hear from these amazing leaders, friends, and people that have made really important differences in our lives in unique ways. Morgan and I met in Los Angeles. How many years ago, Morgan? Six. Six. Yeah. And Morgan and I noticed really early on that we had a lot in common, one of them being our background in athletics. I played volleyball at Penn State and UCLA. She was a cheerleader at U of I. Same age. Both of us were very, very close to our brothers, very, very close to both of our parents. And our parents were still together after, you know, 30 plus years of marriage and still madly in love. Both of our parents went to U of I, both of our dads went to U of I, her mom went to U of I as well, University of Illinois. And their paths were so similar. So it was almost like we were living these, these parallel lives and we had met in LA and uh, her family grew up in Cincinnati, but they just so happened to move back to the South side of Chicago. And so Morgan and I moved back from LA to Chicago together to expand our business. And you know, with everything that's going on in the world, Morgan and I have been talking a lot about the difference that we already make and we are committed to making with bringing people together and highlighting more people's voices that are important to be heard, more people's stories that get to be seen. And uh, one thing that Morgan always comes back to is just so we have so many people we want to highlight, we will highlight. 
is the impact that her dad has had on not only her life, but so many other people's lives. And, you know, we were reflecting on Father's Day and we know this is coming out a week after Father's Day, but, you know, my dad as well. Like I am the person I am today because of my dad. So we're like, why not do a conversation with our dads? You know, Mike is 60. My dad's 64. They're four years apart. They graduated four years, you know, after each other at University of Illinois, similar paths, but both created beautiful families. So Morgan, I don't know if you want to share anything and show your dad so we can hear a little bit about his background. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to have this conversation, one, because there's so many parallels um, between our families. And what really sparked this conversation for me is that on Father's Day, we got to spend some time together and actually reliving and my dad even sharing and reliving with me, not only the way he grew up, the things that, in the ways that he was able to give back into not only his own community, but just literally he's been my father, but he's a, literally a father to so many other people. Um, and just really hearing from him, his story of growing up in DC, being raised by a single mom who um, I'm sure he'll share with you has a lot to do with why he was able to make the choices that he made and really wanted to have him be able to share what it's like growing up in, especially at the time, one of like the toughest projects in DC, um, but still being willing to make certain choices that has literally not only shifted the trajectory of his own life, the trajectory of his brother's lives because they followed after him, the trajectory of other young men and young girls' lives because he was able to mentor them because of the choices that he made. And then, of course, a huge part of who my brother and I are because of the choices that he made. So, Dad, I don't know if you kind of want to set the stage, I guess, um, with what it was like growing up in D.C., what it was like with um, the mom that you had, uh, who is really honestly an integral part of the story. Growing up in D.C. was extremely uh, interesting for me. Uh, that's a good word to use. It was very interesting. And the reason it was interesting was because most of the families there, you may have seen one or two dads within a project area. And, you know, you just did, they just went around. And so what you got as, you know, as a learning things as a man, you either got from a older neighbor mm. or a coach. And so my thing was, okay, even though I saw there was a lot of guys that there were a lot of kid, a lot of my friends that didn't have their dads around. Um, I wanted to make sure that I was an influence on my two younger brothers. And so I had to be like the father figure for them because I knew everything I did, they were right behind, regardless of what it was. If I got in trouble, they were get in trouble too. So um, I wasn't going to allow that to happen. But with my mom, one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure that I put myself on a, a very straight path was because I literally, literally saw my mom go to work, come home, rest for a little bit, get something to eat, and then go to another job. And 
I'm sitting here and, and all in my in my mind is like, I got to do for her. I have to do for her. And I used to always tell my brothers, you know, you know, and my sister, you know, hey, mom is mom is killing herself for us. You know, so uh, we made sure we stayed out of trouble. There were kids in our neighborhood, man. The police was coming, you know, breaking down doors like next door. Our next door neighbors, our houses were being surrounded. And I never forget, my mom used to always, when we come in the house, she would say, uh, make sure you lock the door. And there would be times I would forget. And and it was like, Mike, did you lock the door? I'm going to lock the door. This one incident, I went, she said, Mike, did you lock the door? I was like, oh, man. Well, I was going, when I turned the lock for, for the door to lock, Somebody on the outside was trying to get in. They were being chased by the police. They were going to run into the first open door that they can get in. And the police were out there behind them. And all you heard was banging and banging and, you know, show me your hand, show me your hand. I mean, right outside the door. If I wouldn't have listened to my mom and left that door open, whoever that person was, I don't know if he had a gun. I don't know what he had. But whoever that person was would have been in my house with the police right behind. And from that point on, I was like, I'm listening to whatever my mom tells me and I'm going to do it right then on the spot because I knew for a fact that she has to be right. Because at that moment, when I felt, when I'm turning the lock and I feel somebody pulling on my door and then I hear all this banging and rumbling and, you know, freeze, freeze. I'm like, Oh my God. Then the next thing, you know, the next day I found out what happened. It was my neighbor who got arrested because he was selling drugs. And how would you say, even in that scenario or just grow, just growing up where you guys did, how did, you know, your mom, my grandmother really make the best of where you guys were? I know you were telling me even, you know, your home compared to what was around you, the choices that she made. Well, one, the, the place had to be uh, spotless. It had to be spotless. Everybody, we we were the only we were the only house in our courts that had flowers outside. Mm-hmm. Everybody, nobody else had nobody else had flowers. We had flowers, and we had to take care of it. But you know, my mom made sure she all she said was um, make sure that you guys. Uh, Earn, make sure you earn respect. Because if you can earn respect, that's going to carry you a long way. And he, my mother was a manager of a, a place called Miles Long Sandwiches. It's almost like, it's like Jimmy John's or something. It was similar to that. But she was a manager at this one store. And I used to, you know, get out of school. We go to Jimmy John's and you know, she, you know, and she would always say, my friends remind me that she would always say, Michael, what do you want? And I was like, hey, I want a steak and cheese. My brother, my friend wants such and such. And so we were sitting there, you know, eating. And I didn't find out until years later that she paid for all our meals. Hmm. Every day we went there. Wow. We ate all the meals were free. And I said, mom, why didn't, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you? She said, she said, Mike, she said, listen, you brought your friends over because your mom worked at this place. She said, and I knew that they probably felt like 
they didn't, they weren't going to have to pay. And I didn't want to make you look bad in front of them. So I always took care of it. I said, but you, I said, but I started working. You should have told me, hey, you know, after a while, uh, you got to start paying me for all them steak and cheese sandwiches. <laughs> you know, and, but she didn't, you know, but she, she didn't. I didn't, I didn't learn this until like 20 years later that she was paying for everybody's food. And to this day, a lot of my friends, they would, they would always say, man, if nothing else, your mom made sure we ate. We were going to eat. You know, that if you come on, if you come to my house, I don't care if you just got finished eating somewhere. You had to eat something before you left. <laughs> and when I went away to college, my, my friends would still pop up on my house just to say, talking about they wanted to come to my mom's house and say hi. No, they wanted to come to my mom's house because they knew there was something, there was something on the stove or something in the refrigerator that they could eat. So she, she, you know, she did a lot to make sure that we, uh, uh, we were heading in the right direction as a family. Mike, if there were maybe one or two things you chose to carry on from your mom and maybe one thing you maybe wanted to shift and one or two things you didn't shift from your father, you wanted to shift or, and maybe something you did want to carry on. Is there anything that you you took forward from your parents and anything you wanted, you said, no, stops with me. Oh yeah. Yeah. With, uh, with my mom, the thing that I wanted to carry was that my mom was the, she had the biggest heart of anybody I've ever met in my life. Hmm. She always wanted to do for people. And I am the same way to this day. If I see somebody in need of anything, I'm going to figure out a way to help them. My wife would always say, um, Mike, you can't stop and help everybody. I'm like, I can give it a shot. <laughs> you know, I might can't, you know, I don't know if I can help them, but I sure can give it a shot. Now, uh, what stopped with my father was the fact that he wasn't, he wasn't around. And because he, and when he was around, he was an alcoholic. I'm not afraid to say, I'm not afraid to talk about that. I never saw my dad sober. I have no idea what he was like sober. He was always drunk. And when he and my mom divorced, I think I was five or six years old. Um, but I always knew what kind of dad I wanted to have, and I couldn't get that. So I said, in spite of that, you know, I'm going to be the kind of dad that I wanted, you know, I'm going to be that kind of dad. And so, um, I couldn't wait to have kids. Michelle wanted to wait a while. I was like, Nope, I need some kids right now. <laughs> and I said, all I need is a girl and a boy. and I'm good. Give me the girl and a boy and I'm good. And that's what we had. We had a girl and a boy and, and I was good. But, um, when I was coaching high school, uh, a lot of the kids, I, Marcus used to come around when he was younger. And when, you know, he, Michelle would come pick him up and that kind of thing. You know, I would kiss him. He would kiss me on the cheek. See you later, Pop. And everybody like, man, your son kissing you. I'm like, yes. Yes, he is. Cause he, cause I love him. He loves me. And there's nothing wrong with, with kissing. I said, when you have, whenever you have a child, you're going to realize, you know, how special that is. A lot of those kids right now, 30, 30 years old, 31 years old, you know, they have kids. They, I stay in contact with them to this day. 
I'm look, I'm everybody's uncle. I I, I got I got so many nephews and nieces, and but the thing that they always remember, they were like, Coach Martin, you know, you were right. I said, man, I cannot leave the house unless I kiss my little boy. You know, I let him, you know, let him know. And, and it said, and the thing is, they all say they didn't grow up like that, but their kids would know nothing else other than. Let me kiss my pop before I, before I leave mm. until they get old. I said, and they would never stop. And don't you guys stop. So awesome. So awesome. Well, yeah. I got plenty, man. I got, look, I got plenty. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into that. Dad, do you want to share your story? Similar? Sure. First of all, we do have a, a couple of things in common. Uh, my moms do rule the roost, period. I was very fortunate to have a father in my life, but Moms rule the roost. And secondly, one of the things that we learned from our parents is that, and it used to bug Laura and Scott when they were little, we made sure that we showed affection in front of them. Kissing each other, kissing your kids, hugging, hugging your relatives, we're huggers. And, and so we definitely have that in common. We'd be like, so, Mom, Dad, gross, stop, no, ew. <laughs> still do it. Still do it. Anyway, um, we, my my father was from Oklahoma. He grew up kind of post uh, Dust Bowl, Oklahoma, so had nothing. My father, my mother was from West Virginia, um, and there in basically the only thing you could do there, you were either working on a barge or you working in a coal mine. That was it. And uh, so she graduated high school when she was sixteen, and both of them came to Illinois to find work. And there wasn't there wasn't work in Oklahoma. There wasn't work in in West Virginia, and. Uh, you know, somehow they met, and uh, my dad went to work for a contractor. Um, so we were, he was going, he, they, they were basically putting in pipelines as new subdivisions were sprouting out across Illinois. And as their company expanded, he was just a laborer. Um, he would move from job site to job site. So we lived in a trailer until I was five. Um, so there were three of us, my, my, Sister is a year younger, and my brother, who is a year younger than her, we we the, the five of us with our parents lived in a trailer, um, and didn't didn't think anything of it. I I didn't think I was poor. I knew I didn't have things that other kids had. Um, and interestingly enough, and I think I mentioned this earlier, one of my best friends who I, I met in, in kindergarten at school, he lived in trailer park right across the highway, and it was a highway. It was U.S. Route 20 in Elgin. And so you couldn't really walk across it because the cars were going pretty fast. But I lived in a trailer park that was probably considered a nice trailer park. I don't know. I, he lived in a trailer park that wasn't so nice. Anyway, we got we got separated from high school. I, I just want to tell the story because it's, it's fresh in my mind. We got separated really till we got back to high school because we eventually moved to um, a rented house uh, on his side of the highway. So he and I could go fishing together and collect, play baseball and do whatever we wanted together. And then my family finally saved enough money to, to build a house on the far west side of Elgin. And I didn't see him again until high school. And, and at the time, he was living in the projects in Elgin. I'm living in this new three-bedroom house. You know, it wasn't anything fancy, but to me it was a palace, you know. And I, I ran back into him and I, and I just, I was talking to Laura about that this weekend. I said, you know, how is it that Terry went here? We were as close as two guys could be, and I went here. 
And there was no other reason that, you know, I mean, I, I never knew his parents very well. I know his dad's name was June uh, because anyone who didn't have a nickname in high school, we called them by their dad's name. So Terry became June. Uh, but I don't know. I had parents that pointed me in the right direction and showed me lots of love. And, um, you know, I was on the right side of the bell curve of intelligence, and I probably got opportunities that he didn't get. There's no, no other reason than that. Anyway, we, we, we could, it came out of the blue. We could somehow got connected on Facebook a couple of weeks ago and started talking about this. And it was just, it was just great to connect with him again. But, um, our, our house was full of love always. My mom called all the shots because my dad worked and he worked long and he worked hard. Um, uh, this, you know, the single best lesson that I learned from my mom is love. You gotta love people. You can't call anyone names. You gotta be kind to everyone. Everyone is the same. Um, and, uh, though my dad wasn't much of a church goer, she made us go to church. Um, and she didn't care which church. She just got to go to church. He said, you've got to get some foundation. Um, and so as much as, you know, we probably fought it as kids, um, that got us, that got us a pretty good foundation too. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to, to end up going to a pretty good high school. And, and didn't know anything about college. No one in my family had ever been to college. And, uh, you know, went to my dean of students at the high school and said, what's the biggest, best school in Illinois? I said, Illinois. And I said, well, that's where I'm going. I, I didn't even think about what if I don't get in or anything like that, right? I just went. And uh, so that's the that's the young side of me. Um, sadly, my parents, like yours, divorced. But my parents divorced after 40 years of marriage. You know, my dad, uh, his one weakness. He, re he really, his strength was he fought for the underdog. If he saw someone, he was the kid in the neighborhood who didn't have anything. He'd like, hey, why don't you come over and sweep the garage? I'll make it, give you a couple of bucks. And that, that, that kind of a thing. He was very much like that uh, when he, when he was around. But, um, he also grew up in an era where, I don't know, philandering, uh, outside of the marriage was almost acceptable to, it seemed like to his cohort. And eventually that caught up with him. Uh, but that's a story for another time. The greatest thing he taught all of us was work ethic. He said, if you work hard, even if you're just a kid from Oklahoma with a high school education, you can get by. And I apologize. There's another meeting that's been canceled there. Uh, he, he taught us that. Um, and uh, uh, my mom taught us all of love. That's amazing. So you both end up at Illinois, which is so Illinois. interesting. So, Dad, you were the first to graduate college from your family, correct? Mike, yes. were you? Yes. Wow. Both from yeah, Illinois. It's a big, it big deal. It's a big Mike, deal. Could, could you, Mike, could you have gone to college if you weren't on a scholarship? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, you would have figured my grades weren't the greatest, but I was, I was decent. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, but I mean, for, for me, financially. for me, financially, I oh, remember. No, no, I, no, no, no. If, if, if I wasn't getting some money from somebody, no, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. I remember my mother went down for that, whatever you call it, initiation or orientation or something. And I remember her writing a check for my first semester of room board and tuition for $962. $962. And I thought, oh my God, how is she going to do this? <laughs> right? $962. And, uh, um, you know, got through that semester and the next semester and somehow got through the next year. And I, I worked every summer to use all the money that I had to go to college. But, you know, they always, they still supported me. 
And that's the only reason I became an RA, RA because that got me the full ride at Illinois. Yeah, I uh, if if I didn't if I didn't actually get a scholarship, if I wasn't getting some type of financial aid from somewhere, there yeah. was no way. It wasn't gonna happen. So uh the scholarship was like a, a total blessing for me. Absolutely. And, uh when I tell you know, when I tell folks that man, I said, I'm I'm prolonging bills as long as I can. You know, I don't want to take on no personal bills. I <laughs> said, you know, guys would a lot of my friends would go to college and then be back home in, in about three weeks. I'm like, what are you doing here? Like, man, it didn't work out. No, you got to make it work out. <laughs> I went to work I'm the next saying. day when I graduated. There, there was no one of these. Let, let me take a gap year. I went right. to work the next day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, I mean, there was no way that uh, I wasn't going to allow my allow myself to be in a situation where uh, I wasn't going to take full advantage of not only my athletic ability but uh, the opportunity to get a scholarship. No way. Yeah. Well, we, uh, anyway, Illinois was good to me. My closest friends are all at Illinois, all, all came from Illinois. And, you know, it was my first time away from home. And, and while, when my first year, when I went to college, my parents moved to Texas. Um, so I didn't even get to see my younger siblings. I got a brother 15 years younger. I, I kind of missed them growing up. Um, uh, but, you know, I'd, I'd go home every, every break I could and that kind of stuff. But, uh, um, Illinois pointed me in the right direction, but it also, when you go to a school that big, and I was just a liberal arts guy, I was going to go to law school and things, I don't know, somehow I got pointed in a different direction. And um, uh, in Illinois, unless you're in accounting or engineering or really, you know, or the number uh, one football player, vertical practice, well, you're the top receiver on the team. <laughs> you know, you're just a number. Right. Right. You know, I didn't, I didn't know my advisors. I didn't know what I was going to do. So i I grew up in a construction family. I left Illinois and got a construction job. I knew, like you, I wasn't going to waste anything and I wasn't going to have bills. And I did that for three years until one day I woke up and said, look, I might be out earning all of my friends, but I am not going to be in mud up to my butt for the rest of my life. I'm not going to do it. I'm smarter than that. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to me. And then, Mike, so you were, were you the number one receiver in what, the United States at that time? <laughs> Yeah, actually, I was. Wow. <laughs> I was my senior year. I uh, was the leading receiver in the nation. You had a good quarterback too. Yes, I did. Tony East. It was good. And, uh, it was interesting that um, I didn't get drafted. In in today's draft, I would have been a free agent. Wow! Really? I didn't get drafted to the eighth round. Um. They said a lot of teams said I was a victim of a passing offense and that they just do a lot of passes. So I had to catch as many as I did. But I'm like, wait a minute, go back and look at how many I dropped. It wasn't many. So that should that should count for something. The other thing was I played in the Japan Bowl and the week after the Japan Bowl, they had to come out and my 40 time wasn't great. I think I ran like a a. a Mid four six something. So they were saying pretty fast for a big man. And but wait a minute. They also said that I had a loose knee, which I'm trying to figure out where that came from because I never had knee problems. But they were saying that some doctor had said, well, his both his knees are loose and he's a hit away from having him being blown out. 
So nobody, it was like a couple of, a, a few different things that was, that was actually happening to me that was keeping me from being drafted. So I'm sitting there, I'm in, I'm in California watching the draft. I'm my agent, my agent was in California. So I'm at his place in California. I'm watching the draft and the Washington Redskins called earlier that week and said, Hey, we want to bring you back home. If you are available in the fourth round, we're going to draft you. I said, okay. But he said, but we don't think you're going to last that long. So I'm watching guys get drafted in front of me that I receivers that I've never even heard of. But they had these blazing fast 40 times, 429, 431, that, that, you know, just, but they couldn't catch a cold. So I said, who cares if they can run? If they can't catch, what difference does it make? You know, but so I'm sitting there. The fourth round of the draft comes up. The Washington Redskins on the clock. So my phone starts ringing. They're like, Mike, here you go. It's about to happen. It's about to they get up. The guy says, with this such and such pick in the fourth round, Washington Redskins select wide receiver. When they say wide receiver, my heart just took off. I'm like, I'm going back home. I'm going back home. They named some guy. I had no idea who he was. And I could not believe it. I bet he didn't last eight years in the pros. He didn't last. He didn't last that season. <laughs> he got cut that year. And so, twenty-two receivers. I was the twenty-second receiver drafted that year. Twenty receivers. I played longer than twenty other receivers. The only guy that played longer than me that year, Willie Gold, and oh God, I can't think of guy played for the Rams. I can't think of his name. He's a, he's a big time receiver coach now in the NFL. There were those one or two guys that played longer than I did. Everybody else got cut. And for me to be a eighth round draft choice, uh, and I also, Laura, I led the NFL in punt returns. Whoa. 1984. I was the leading punt returner in the NFL. I wasn't blessed with that <laughs> kind of athleticism. In fact, my nickname is Struggs, S T R U G G S, and it's short for struggling. I'll tell you, I got it. <laughs> I got it in high school because, all right, um, we had a pretty quick backfield. Um, and uh, one of the kids in the backfield was so fast. He's a black kid, David Covington. And he ran so smoothly with no effort. We called him Ghost because he looked like he floated when he ran. And I was always trying to keep off the <laughs> And it just looked like Pigpen from Charlie Brown. You know, it's just dust flying, arms flying. And he would look at me and he'd run by me and he'd go, man, why are you struggling? And I said, I will be here in the backfield right next to you all year long. That's why I'm struggling. So he started calling me that. And I liked it. And rather than rather than feel bad about it, I embraced it. And my wife calls me Struggs. <laughs> all my friends call me Struggs. And it, and it came from David Covington in football. So I was not blessed with your skills. But I had a lot of this. <laughs> I have a question. So, you know, especially, so I went to University of Illinois as well. ILL all day. We were singing the the, um, the alma mater earlier. But, you know, Laura and I were really talking about even the difference in the, even like the di- racial diversity in, 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 at U of I from when I was there through 2005 to 2009. And really interested to hear for you both what it was like um, during that time on on campus. I'm going to jump in here. Um, 
because I was a, when I was in high school, and remember I mentioned my friend Terry. Uh, he lived in the projects. Um, they actually shipped kids in the projects over to the west side of high school to better integrate the schools. And so, you know, these were these were all my buddies. And when I got to Illinois, I thought we'd be so beyond the color thing that, you know, we black fraternities. There were white fraternities. There were Jewish fraternities. There were Catholic fraternities. There was there was this, and everyone kind of found their like groups. And there, there was no melting pot. And I was surprised by that. Now, as I got older, I understood the reasons for it, right? People are trying to find their own kind and, and develop that. I, I didn't understand it that. It bothered me a lot. I, th- I thought, well, I, I don't know. You know, we went through the 60s. I thought this crap was so far behind us, yeah. you know, and it wasn't behind us at all. And maybe it was just because that's the way we were raised, you know. You, you just... Everyone's the same, you know. Well, now, I mean, to live in that hall, you got to be Catholic. To live over there, you got to be Jewish. To be in this fraternity, you got to be black. I, that was my, that was a very surprising experience to me. I thought it would be different. I don't know how Mike felt, but you, me, you know, was, uh, what, what was interesting for me is that I not seeing a whole lot of whites in 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 DC and in the area where I live. When I got to Illinois, man, it was it was an eye opener for me. And, and I I literally literally spoke to every single person that I saw. They a lot of them thought I was crazy. Well, I mean, white guys, white females. Hey, how you? Hey, how you? And I, and I, and I overdid it. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? And they were like, Oh, hey, hi. hi. And but the other part of that was during the time, and I was telling Morgan. I think it, I think the the population of the the percentage of blacks were around four percent when I was there, and when they told me that, I thought I literally thought that 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 had to be wrong. When blacks would get together, it would seem like like we could fill up a stadium. And I'm like, man, you and, and, and probably because I'm thinking about the parties. When I go to the parties, you know, it's like. Outside, inside, it was like nothing but black folks. But soon you hit the campuses and the classrooms, the majority of the people in there, you know, were white. But see, how I grew up, you know, my mother taught me to love unconditionally. And so I never uh, even thought about, you know, what color anybody was. My thing was, okay, I'm going to be friendly to you and I want to receive that in return. Mm. Morgan, what was your experience, what, 30 years later? It was really interesting because, well, one, I came on, I was actually one of the, not one of, I was the only black cheerleader um, at the time at the University of Illinois. Um, later, there were there were many more. And so my experience was even very different. I was talking to some of my roommates at the time. I had, uh, well, outside of once you get out of the dorms, I had um, three black females there, still some of my best friends to this day, and we live together. But my, my experience of U of I was even different than theirs because I was always in positions to be amongst different groups. So being a cheerleader, I was, you know, we were, we traveled, we were in different arenas, you mix and mingled, it was a different thing. And so similar to like, even what my dad was sharing, their experience was a little more of like that. It was just like, everybody was together. We had our parties, for lack of a better word. It was, it was very separated. What was difficult for me is that similar to you, Randy, that wasn't my vision of what college was going to be like. My, I was, I was my, so naive. 
Yeah, I came from a high school that um, was very, my high school, outside of actually my long-term upbringing, which we can share in a bit, but my high school was extremely diverse. I mean, from some of the richest people in the city to the poorest people in the city, Black, white, Asian, Hispanic. I mean, we had international students that went to our school. So I left this melting pot thinking I was going to a bigger melting pot to really find out that it became, it was extremely, it was a lot of diversity, but it was segregated at the same time. Here I am, the only black cheerleader. And honestly, and I'm so grateful for my coach. Um, her name is Stephanie Record, if she listens to this. I remember her before the tryout, honestly, just wanting to give me a chance because she actually was really wanting to have more diversity on the team. Mind you, I had never done half of the things that most of my my other cheerleaders had done. I didn't, I didn't grow up learning how to stun and do all these things and all of that. She took time with me literally the night before our tryout because she was like, I see something in you and I know you're going to help create change and bring something different on this team. And I'm so grateful for her heart because what she could have seen was, you don't know how to do the high up lid basket tosser. You don't know how to do this, that, and the other. But she saw someone that was willing to put in the work despite the certain things that I did not have. And I was able to really, truly not only earn my spot, but probably in a way start to open up the doors for, you know, other people to see that, no, it, we really get to continue to have diversity in in all areas. And I'm so grateful for her for not only having that heart, but being willing to, to take a chance on someone that was just willing to consistently work hard. And so my experience was, um, was really being almost a bridge in many conversations. Like I was the bridge of friends and the bridge of gaps and the bridge of, um, just being able to kind of bring people together in that way, because that's all I ever knew. And so even on a big university with so much separation, um, to me, it was important to have those that as well, because I do think when you're coming from wherever you grew up in, in certain things, and now you're put into this college and this university among so many people, it's scary. And you want that feeling of of home and you want that feeling of knowing that there are other people that that can understand you and that are like you and then once you can get past that that's when um people can start to see past just race gender you know sexuality whatever and really start to see what you guys were sharing which is really just the love and where so many in so many ways that people are parallel and i think you two um mike and randy are such a great example of that because so much of your lives are parallel in we play sports you know sports you know you it didn't matter what color you were in sports it mattered is you know it's, it's like the tom brady thing just do your job man you know it didn't matter if you look i only played on special teams because i was a little guy you know <laughs> but you know i, I led tackles on, on on kickoffs and and all of that but sports brought us together and it, it there was in that with that there was more likeness than there were differences and i i'm very grateful for sports for that music does the same thing yep music and morgan and i are committed to that and what we do that's why we love it as well both of another thing that both of you have in common which is sadly so rare is that you're both still married dad you and mom have been married for how many years 36 
We've been married 36 years, and we dated almost six years before that because we Holloway boys are hard to convince. So, <laughs> and what about you, Mike? 34 and four. Wow. wow. Yeah, and I've got to tell you something. Um, Scott called me from college, and he said, Dad, how is it that none of our friends are divorced? And I said, you know, I think it's just because we're attracted to similar morals and values and stuff. And, and it's also kind of a bubble anyway. Um, but, you know, you, you, you want to hang around with people that are kind, that, that love each other. I don't want to be around a couple that's fighting. <laughs> you know, and yeah. not, not that we don't, you know, adults don't have their differences. But, you know what? I, I think the word divorce is, is, is so easily used. You know, I, I, I used to tell my friends, you know, when they talk about thinking about either getting divorced or thinking about getting divorced. Now, I, I do understand that there are some circumstances that you, you know, there's, you can't get out of, you know, you, some things that you just can't overcome. But for the most part, um, when, when you have a disagreement or you, you know, you, you don't, you know, something comes up, you think about the kind of love that you have. Whatever that situation is, is it worth it? Is it worth your love? Is it worth giving up for your love that you have for one another? And it took it, you know, it, it really it took my wife and I uh, a, a few years, especially me being in the NFL and all over the place and on the road. Traffic. It took it took us a few years to really understand the fact that listen, you know what? At the end of the day, you know. I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. Uh, I didn't believe in, you know, you know, if, if an argument comes up and you're mad at each other, you know, just go sleep it off and wake up in the morning. We'd be fine. No, we're not going to bed mad. <laughs> that was my thing. We are not going to go to bed mad. Got to say, I love you and kiss them every night. Right. You got to, we got to figure it out tonight before I go to bed or I'm not going to be able to sleep. <laughs> so let's figure it out now. And, and it became, it, it got to a point where we started to realize, okay, is this argument that important? Is it, is it that serious to where you're going to be mad for a couple of days? You know, and it's, and, and the answer is always no, always. It's always no. And so when I talk to a lot of my friends that, uh, I, I, I have a friend now. He's, he's about to get another divorce. He's, he's his second one. And uh, he, he, has, you know, he say, Mike, I don't know how you do it. I said, you know why? I said, you know why you have have issues? Because y'all don't like each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. I like doing stuff with her. Right, exactly. <laughs> she's she's got a torn ACL right now, so she can't do anything. And so the most we can do is walk around the block together, right? But before we would golf together. Yeah. Oh, she'll she'll all of that. You got to, you got to like spending time together. Yes. yes. A lot of people, you know, they, they don't, you know, folks don't like each other. You can, you can love somebody because in most situations you have kids and you, you love each other. She's, she's the mother of my child, you know, but I still don't like you. You know, that's not our case. We, we literally like each other. We're like best friends. We love going on, we love going on trips together. We Same love, man. man, we can go places and just enjoy ourselves and never have to worry about anything. Because one, she knows what, she knows what I enjoy. I know what she enjoys. 
She knows, I know for a fact, whenever, wherever we go, she's going to take a nap as soon as we get to the hotel. <laughs> and I'm good with that. You know, she's she going to go right to the room. Uh, I'm going to sleep for a couple hours. Okay, I'm out. I'm gone. <laughs> I'll be back in a few. And but but that's that's just us. You that's gotta what, like her. And she never said, "Well, why are you going out now? You know, uh, stay here with me." No, you you want a nap? I don't. Take your nap, and I'm going enjoy myself. And we going. And when I come back, we're gonna go do something together. But that, but you know, and, and again, after being around each other for quite a long time, you start understanding what each other likes. Yeah, yeah. You gotta you gotta like that person. Yeah, you do. We uh we got a lot of friends who like to travel together in big groups and Tina and I don't I mean we've done it once or twice, but that's not our thing. Cause cause we want to be able to do what we want to do. I know what she likes and she knows what I like and and frankly, I don't care what other people think about that. I'm old I'm old enough now to just tell them how I feel. Hey guys, I just don't want to go into that big of a group. Right. <laughs> I'm with my wife. Right. So yeah, so we, I was, I was really, really lucky that, you know, I dated her a long time and I got to know her family really well. And, um, e- even though her parents got divorced too, there was so much love in her house. I mean, Laura loves all her aunts. My wife has five sisters. Um, and, uh, to, to see that tightness of a family, uh, that was really important to me because I knew that we had common values. You know, she grew up in the Catholic Church. I didn't. I grew up in the Baptist Church. Um, but uh, but I knew that we had very, very common family values, and very little was more important than family. I made a lot of work decisions around family. You know, hey, we want to transfer you to Dallas. Uh, yeah, now that's not going to work for my family. How about San Francisco? Yeah, that's not going to work for my family either. <laughs> you know, so I made I made some decisions that maybe cost us some money. But in the long run, was so much better than my for my family because I that was the most important thing to me, more important than the job. So the job. Does I will say, from my perspective, it's like you know you could grow up with all the things in the world. I, I got to see a lot of my friends that grew up with a lot more stuff than I had. You know, we grew up in a very wealthy side of town. And there's different sides of the town, <laughs> and. The one thing was everyone still wanted to come to our house. We had the little know, house. Because there was so much love and everyone wanted to come hang out and sleep over and, and hang with the parents. My dad would wake up and make everyone pancakes because you just can't put a price tag on love. We had the smallest, <laughs> we had the smallest house of any of our friends. Lori had a friend with a house that sat on 400 acres and was 26,000 square feet. It had a gymnasium, an indoor pool, trout ponds, northern pike ponds. It had everything. We got a three-bedroom ranch in the woods. Everyone wanted to come here. Yeah. It's so funny. He's the same pancake. pancake. <laughs> Anybody that came to the house, like... Now, Mike, did you put chocolate chips and peanut butter on them? No, I didn't. <laughs> Uh-oh, we got an upgrade. I didn't. <laughs> but I think it's so important. You know, I was... You know, Laura and I were talking the other day, and you know, I was sharing, you know, I actually have quite a few friends that grew up um, without their dads in their lives. And especially with so much going on right now, I was watching this documentary Oprah did on OWN and it was called, um, it was like dark skin girl or dark girl or something along these lines. And so many women were sharing how when they went out into the world that they were, whether it be 
you know, made to feel a certain way because of the color of their skin or because of the way that they looked or the way that they were shaped or this, that, and the other. And just sharing all their experiences. And there was this one woman that shared, she said, honestly, she said, there probably were plenty of people that either said those things about me or thought those things, but I grew up in a household of love. I grew up with a father that told me every single day how beautiful I was. I grew up in a household where I was made to feel beautiful every single day so that when I walked out into the world, the thought of even being ugly was like, to who? Because my dad says that I'm beautiful. And, you know, I tell my dad that all the time because there are so many, so many things that sometimes you take for granted because you're used to it. I you forget that there's so many people that didn't, that don't have either the father figures or the household or the homes or having both parents in the household and in the role that that, that that plays. Like so much, so much of who I am and my own self-esteem about myself and my own self-worth is because it was repeated to me consistently every single day. My dad told me how much he loved me. My dad told me how beautiful I was. I saw my dad say the same things to my mom. So anything other than that just wasn't even, wasn't even an option for me. And if it were to come my way, it was like, again, doesn't matter because the first man that ever loved me in my life, aka my father, always told me my value. So I think that that's such an important thing that you all both did for both Laura and I, because our who our value um, of ourselves is it starts at such a young age subconsciously. And I grew up not thinking anything different of myself than what my father said. So that, is that why I don't have any grandkids? <laughs> <laughs> Probably why he doesn't either. You got lots of. Oh, you do. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. From I me. Do. I don't have one from you. <laughs> I need one from my daughter. I had a daughter first. Hey, anybody I'm, out I'm there. Grateful. Morgan grateful. and I are open, but they have to be, they have to love us more than our fathers do. So and good luck. To, right. You have to go through Randy and Mike. Yeah. First, so. what they do. They, they've got to have good values. Mm-hmm. They've got to have very, very strong values and they have to be kind. I will not tolerate deliberate cruelty under any circumstance. Amen. Ever. Amen. One thing I'll say like to Morgan's point though, like out. So one thing I, there's a lot of things I acknowledge my parents for, like just choices they've made. So my life was my life. I I didn't, you know, while I noticed that we didn't have as much as some other people, I, I always felt taken care of, never missed a meal. My dad was present at every single volleyball game. He wore a pink shirt. You know, he was the dad for so many, you know, he had the pinky wave in the stands and just having a present father and mother that cheered for you and were there for you, period, is everything. And my parents gave me a global perspective. We traveled. I traveled with sports. You know, while I grew up in the Northwest suburbs in Chicago, and it's one of the most segregated cities in the world, we saw everything. They made it very, it was an important part of our lives. Like I I still- back homeless after games. Yes. We still went to the, we went to the Chicago Bulls games. We were there for all the championships. But we would take all the extra food in the skybox after and go and feed the homeless for two hours every single time. And it was connecting with them, being with them, humanizing every single person, seeing so much. But I will say to this point is like the one thing that I remember about like kids and seeing families is 
I just didn't never thought it was fair that they didn't have the love that I had. I was like, how how did I get this much love? Like, it's one thing. Like, yes, we have to change education. Yes, we have to change so many things. But like, how is a kid gonna focus in school if he's going home to a to a up, upset household that doesn't even have food? Right. Like, there's so many things to shift. But like, that love is like always close to my heart and something I noticed at a very young age that I had that was extremely unique. And, you know, one thing that I acknowledge both you and Mike for, dad, is that you guys chose to be mentors to people that didn't have that love. And I think, you know, that is so important. Like one of your, both of your values is to give back, to be mentors, to mentor kids that maybe don't have those uh, parent figures. You know, Morgan and I try with all of our centers to be a safe home for so many people to feel love, to walk in and feel a sense of hope, to feel a sense of encouragement, to feel like Hey, if you don't have love at home, you have love here, right? <laughs> if you don't if you don't feel good about yourself, you're going to feel good about yourself leaving here, right? If you didn't have confidence growing up, you're going to be confident leaving our building, right? So I just really want to acknowledge you both for giving us what we had but but also being willing to give it back. Well, you know, anyone that came into this house, you know, they know that they felt love and they couldn't they had to, they had to show love too. You know, it was, it was expected, right? That's just the way you are. So, listen, I know this is about fatherhood. So, and Laura, and I know I've told you this before, but you've probably forgotten. Um, <laughs> do you know my proudest father moment ever? No. Oh, and, and, and we've had so many, you know, you, you and Scott have had, you know, academic honors and athletic honors and, you know, your, your speeches and some of the great things you did in the neighborhood when, you know, someone's house burned down or someone lost their dogs and all the things that you did. But uh, you were in first grade and Scott was in kindergarten. And I, it was, uh, I walked into school one day and uh, the teacher came running up to me and she was practically in tears. She said, I have to tell you what your kids did today. And they said there was a little girl in the neighborhood. She was in the playground and she was kind of being teased and no one was playing with her. I don't know if you remember her name, Laura. She was an Indian girl. Um, her name was Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. And, and you and Scotty saw it and you went over and started playing with them. And I get goosebumps every time I think about it. And, you know, and I was trying not to tear up in front of her. And I just said that. And, and I came home and talked to mom and I said, okay, I know we're not done, but we got that part done. We got that part done right. And that was the single proudest moment I ever had as being a father right there. Mm. And that I know, I know we got that part right. Yeah. They, they, something rubbed off. Something, they, they, they got it. <laughs> they got it. You know, and you might not, you might not think about that, that little thing, but I just thought that little moment of kindness. Well, you know, something Morgan and I have always had, and you guys, We've all had that gift of influence. You know, I've been an athlete. I've always been someone people looked up to. And with that, like, I choose to stand for the underdog because, you know, if anyone's going to be picked on or needs support, like Mike said, or can't stand up for themselves, or even at a moment like we have in, in our country today, like, I'm committed to doing my part because I, I know with my voice and who I am, I might be a woman in America today. I'm a white woman in America today, and I know I can create a lot more diversity in a lot of places, and I know that I can use my voice in ways for other people, and I'm committed to doing that. You know, I'm committed to standing up for people, and, and that's something that I get to do because of who I am and the influence that I have, and, I, and I've, maybe that was just given to me through you and dad. And, you know, Mike, I know you're a mentor to so many kids and boys, and I don't know your perspective on what's going on in the world and if you have any 
thoughts on it and and how we can continue to heal and grow and move forward? You know, one of the things that I always talk about is there's not enough compassion and love. If you think about everything that's going on, and, and, and I'll get to the point where um, the guy that got shot in the back in Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, running away, they they frisked him. He didn't have a gun, so they knew he didn't. They knew he couldn't do anything. Yeah, he had the taser. But think about this: if you had a little more compassion, you could have said, "We we have his ID. He's all he's drunk. We know he's drunk. We have his ID." Let's just, let's just let him run out of gas because he was, he was stumbling as he was running, but not kill him. Right. Not shoot him in the back. And if some, and if they had a little compassion during that moment, that wouldn't have happened. Amen. You know, that wouldn't have happened. And so, um, I'm driving over here and I hear about a little three year old boy that got killed. That got killed yesterday. Hmm. Three years old. In the car with his dad. Yeah. I'm thinking. When's it going to end? Yeah. You know, what what put you to that point where you could care less about, you know, not only taking somebody's dad, taking somebody's uh, son, taking somebody's friend, just just affecting everybody that, uh, you know, because you're not thinking about, you know, all the other people that's involved. In your mind, it's like, okay, I'm going to go kill that person, and I could care less who's around. And now, you know, now a whole family. This the mom was on the radio today, and she couldn't. She couldn't do nothing. She couldn't stop crying. She was like, "My son was three years old. Whatever the issue was, he had nothing to do with it. Why kill him? Because he was with, you know, his dad, and so." You know, for me, I, I, I just always, I, I'll say this in the beginning. You know, when Morgan and I were running, we were driving down the street the weekend, driving down 95th Street, the weekend all the foolishness started happening, all the looting and everything was going on. We drive down the street and it almost brought both of us to tears. We were on the phone together. It brought, it brought us to tears because my wife and I were watching it. We were crying. We said, how can this be? I'm gonna, this is not 1968. How could this be? I went home and got in the bed because I was so, I was just frustrated with everything. And I'm thinking, man, if these people had some love and compassion, they would understand who's, you know, maybe that store that I just broke into was a family owned store that they need, you know, they're going to need their store to operate, to live. Okay. And because I have love and compassion, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to break into their store. I'm not going to do that. But it was like, it was all about them. We literally, and I'm not joking. I told Morgan, I said, Morgan, we, we got to film this. Pull out your phone and film some of this. that Because this is stuff that we're going to share years from now. Literally seeing like the stuff that we saw back in the 60s when they were doing all the rioting and all that kind of looting and all that kind of stuff. It's like it's happening again. I said, we got to have, we got to videotape all this stuff. I, I don't think people really understand the fact that, man, Love each other. Mike, Tina and I were watching the news the last couple of nights, and I don't know how many times we said, I am embarrassed to be an American right now. Oh, yeah. Embarrassed. How, how is it possible? So 
Laura, you asked this question, um, and I'm, I've been in this Bible study for 25 years. It's a group of guys that I happened to be fortunate enough to meet when I was downtown. And every Tuesday morning at 7:30, we've been we've been meeting, and we, we just studied. And, and that's that to me. That's church. I, I, that's my church. I don't go to a regular church, but that's my church. Um, and uh, we got talking about this in our last couple of studies, and we said, guys, I said I, I, something has to be done. I don't I don't know what to do. I'm finding out things that I was so naive to that I'm thinking like. Okay, you know, just because I'm not prejudiced doesn't mean that 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 doesn't mean that I'm doing enough, right? It means it means do I have some unfounded fears in me? Sure. Do, do I have that? What can we do? So, one of the guys that's in the group, he's actually uh, a pastor at, at Grace Church downtown. He recommended this book. Uh, it's called One Blood. It's written by a black pastor. Um, his name is John Perkins. Is this the last book he's write, written? I think he wrote it when he was 88. Uh, I think he's still around. He's, I think he's 92, but I think it was just published a year or two ago. And one of the things that he said is that this issue is so big, he doesn't think that it can be solved by people alone, that it needs the church. And I don't know if he's right, but I do know that in all my study of the Bible, in all my study of the Bible, I can break it down to two things. Love God love man, right? Everything I've read in it, from cut front to back, it's those two things. If you do those two things, everything's going to work out. So that's what the church has. So maybe that's what he means. He said, you need the church to solve this. And Chicago has half the parishes that it had in 1950. You don't have, you don't have, you know, you don't have that guy who's kicking you in the butt and saying, hey, Mike, I saw you do that. Take that candy bar back. You know, we don't we don't have that anymore. So I I don't know, but I know that it's not right, and I know that if we do not understand how to love, we're not going to fix it. Yeah. And that's I guess that's my question. And what? Because again, Laura and I even just expo- sharing our own experience of growing up with the fathers we grew up with, growing up in the household, compassion and love wasn't ever something that I even thought about because it was just it was just always around since birth. And yet there are so many that didn't have that and didn't grow up with someone to teach them love or to have compassion. So where or how can we in, in our own way, or have you all done in some forms, even in your own life? I mean, I know obviously being mentors and fathers to others, can we start to, plant that seed of love and compassion to to others outside of just us. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I do. For years, I was involved with the Off the Street Club in Chicago, but I, 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 got, I was involved for 15 years, and I just I had to move on to do other things. Um, uh, you know, and, and just, just showing up is half of it. Just being there to be, hey, kid, want to sit down this week for a while? You know? I play basketball. What, what what do you want to do? Just just showing up is part of it. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, talking to people, uh, you know, finding out uh, finding out uh, you know words that they find offensive that I had no idea were offensive. <laughs> you know, so um, I don't know. But I do know I do know this love thing, Mike, and that's what you kept talking about, and that's that's what reminded me of this book. Uh, Parting words to the church and race and love, but uh, the church on race and love. And I thought, well, yeah, you're, you're, you're nailing it. This is, this is it. So 
you have to show it to everyone. It's hard, you know. In uh, 2000, uh, in 9/11, you know, I looked differently at an Arab walking down the street. Was that an in? Was that taught to me because all I could see on the news was bad things? Or, yeah. or was that an inherent prejudice inside of me? I don't know. I don't know. But I, but I was. I thought differently. You know. Yeah. You know. So how do how do I say? Well, I have to love that man because he's a because he's a Muslim, and and if he's a Muslim, I know he's full of love. <laughs> you know. So I don't know. I, I know that there's things that we have been. The media has driven into us. It's hard to get out. Yes. It's hard to get out of it. So you gotta you gotta rise above it and stop watching some of that crap. Think about not think about uh during the times of nine eleven. Whenever I got on a plane and I saw uh, uh a, a foreigner that uh looked like uh um was looked like Taliban. Mm-hmm. There was no love in me. None. And I know that guy probably had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> but in my mind, I'm I'm thinking, uh, has anybody checked this guy? You know, has anybody, you know, find out if he if he has anything? Did he get checked down thoroughly? You know, and I'm thinking, wow. You know, I said that's I wouldn't want anybody to look at me and say, Okay, here's a black guy. Uh, are you gonna rob me? Um, uh, is he, you know, uh, sh- should I keep my hands in my pocket? You know, and, and, and that moment I said, you know what? I can't allow stereotypes to, to create me not having love. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. I know. It, and, and, and it's hard, you know, because yeah. if, if we sat down and talked to that guy, we, he, we might find out that like us, he grew up with little and ended up with a lot. Yeah. You know, he might he he's probably an American, you know, probably probably first generation American, yeah. you know, probably struggled just like we did to go to school and, and, and to and to get ahead. Probably probably the exact same because I'm convinced that there's more in common than there is a there is a part. But instead we thought the same thing. Yeah. yeah. You know. So anyway, we're gonna try not to think the same things. And uh, you know, Laura, I remember when you first came back from LA. Um, I don't think you quite had your head clear on what your vision was, but I know that it was centered around love, you know, and once you started, uh, you know, uh, getting your group together and meeting people like Morgan and, and so many other, uh, good friends. And, um, I started to understand what you're trying to do. And so thanks for doing this. Um, uh, nothing, nothing greater than being a father. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nothing greater. I have I haven't had the pain of losing a child like you have. I don't know if I'm strong enough to survive it, but uh, nothing greater than being a father. Oh, no, without a doubt. I tell people all the time that uh, I've lost a lot of people: my mom, my dad, relatives. But yeah, it's hard. The hard. It's it's hard. Uh, it's, it's, it's a love that you cannot explain. You cannot. My grandmother, uh, when my uncle died, um, he was wounded in, in the Korean War and he was shot in the back. And so he basically walked all hunched over all of his life and he became an alcoholic and he died, I think, when he was about 65. And I remember my grandma at the hospital telling me, you know, 
when your child goes before you, it doesn't matter that I'm 88 right now. When your child goes before you, it's unnatural. And I remember that thinking like, that's my grandmother, 88 years old, still worrying about her little boy. Right? Mm -hmm. It's not, there's, it can't be explained until you're doing it. Hardest job in the world and the best job in the world. And and the only thing you can do is to allow yourself to keep those memories forever in your heart. We, we have, we, sh- we have his phone, Marcus's phone, is sitting next to our bed. And there's a picture of him and Michelle on the phone. And if that light goes out on that phone, and I don't know what happens, but it, it'll go out and I'll just touch it. And it was like, just come back on and just light up the room. And, and I'm like, He's still watching. He's still, you know, he's still keeping his eye on it. Uh, real quick story. I'm going to tell you guys this. Um, I finally, I finally fixed my sound bar on my TV. I bought the sound bar and I think I had it for two years and never used it because I didn't know how. I didn't know how to fix it. I said, I'm going to fix this sound bar. So I couldn't find the remote for the sound bar. We picked up the couches, we pulled back the phone, we pulled everything. And along with that was our remote for our Netflix. Couldn't find either one. Michelle turned the, the, the family room inside out. Turned it inside out. And so a lot of times when I'm having trouble with anything, I'll say, hey, Marcus, help me out, man. Please help. I'm sitting on the couch. This, this, this is how crazy stuff is. I'm sitting on the couch. Now, granted, we done turned this whole couch upside down, shook it, you know, pulled all the, you know, all the seat cushions off. I'm sitting on the couch and I just, and I'm in my, I'm saying, Marcus, and where's the, where's the remote? I stick my hand in the side of the couch and I pull out the remote to the sound bar. And I, and Michelle looks at me and I'm like, I said, I found the sound bar. She said, I, I hope the remote is close by too. I stuck my hand down there and pulled out the remote. And she looked at me and she was like, no. She said, Mike, I pulled out every single cushion in this couch. I said, I'm telling you. I said, I know. I said, but Michelle, what I didn't tell you was I'm sitting here because I wanted my sound bar on. I'm sitting here saying, Marcus, where's the the sound bar uh, remote? Angels are real. I stuck my hand down and just pulled it up. And all she could do was laugh. <laughs> That's all she could do. She was like, nobody would believe this. Nobody. We literally took every cushion out of the couch and put it on the floor. And then I just stuck my hand down in the crease of it and just found it. I know Morgan asks Marcus for help all the time. And he's this huge guide for her vision and everything you guys are creating. You got, you're wearing a shirt, Marcus Martin Foundation. I saw that. Yeah, that's my. Do you want to share with the world about Marcus Martin Foundation? It's pretty cool. Yes, the uh, Marcus Martin Foundation. Uh, basically, what we do is we provide uh, college assistance for young young people. Um, I know we've done some in Chicago, we've done some in uh, Cincinnati, and we've done some. We 
giving out scholarships in D.C., and we're going to continue to do that. The other thing is that we create free youth football camps for kids. Um, we, we try to make – Marcus was a big believer in understanding uh, the fundamentals of football at a very young age because he knew he couldn't play unless he understood, you know, how the game was played. And so he would always talk about, you know, Dad, we got to go back and teach the young kids the proper way to play, you know. And, and so I, so when he passed away, uh, that July, I had my, I had the first Martin Mar- Marcus Martin Youth Football Camp, and uh, we had it at his at his high school. And you know, we pretty much said that this is going to be one of the things that uh, is going to be his legacy. Um, one of my, one of my teammates, Anthony Munoz, who's in the Hall of Fame, Anthony Munoz has a, a, a shirt company, a printing company. He does all his shirts because the kids used to call Marcus Sexy Munoz. <laughs> and so Martin, uh, Anthony, Anthony used to always say, you know, how's my son? Where, you know, how's my son doing? How's my son doing? And then when he, when he passed, you know, when I found out, he had a shirt company. Anthony's like, hey, you don't even have to ask. Tell me how many, how many you need. I'll do it for you every year. So cool. Dad, what do you want to be known for? I hope my tombstone um, doesn't says what Scott says it's going to say on it. He said, your tombstone is going to say what? <laughs> I guess I'm hard of hearing. Um, no, you know what? I want to say that he was a really good father and a good friend and a good man. I love that. What about you, except, Mike? Except I'm not going to have a tombstone. You know I'm going to be cremated. Bar. Yeah, me too. I don't need all. My, yeah, neither mine. <laughs> I'm not going to. You can make me into a bench in a cool park or something. Have, 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 have a party. Sorry, Mike, I cut you off. My, mine, mine is going to be simple. He was here. Mm. He was here. And anybody that, anybody that knows me know exactly what that means. So they don't even, so you, you may have some people that may say, well, what was he talking about? And anybody that, that was, that's around will, will know exactly what to tell them, what that meant. Laura, you know, when I say I want no presence, I want your presence. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. You're present with whomever you are with, you are present. Morgan, is there anything else you want to share or ask or express before we leave? Well, one, I'm just really grateful for both of you all, not only taking the time to be to be on here and share, um, but just for the men that you that you are and that you've been not only in our lives, but what it sounds like for so many people. And I think it just listening to you all speak and share, it sounds like really just the overall message of everything is really I heard repetitively love, compassion kindness and respect and the fact that you all have been not only examples of that for Laura and I, but continue to be that for other people in the way that you give back and the way that you show up and probably in ways that many of us will never see and and in many ways that we have seen. And so I'm just really thankful to, to not only be able to have this discussion with you all, but just for just the outstanding men that you've been. And I, and I hope that there will continue to be many more that continue to 
learn or share or take away something from this to be able to be that same example for, for others as well. Well, I would say that our progeny is, is doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> you combine that love with the work ethic that you guys have. I feel like anything's possible. So you've definitely shown us both what's possible. So thank you both for being here. We love you. Happy Father's Day. What a great conversation. Incredible men who had amazing families. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Dad, for sharing your wisdom and sharing your hearts with all of us. I'm leaving extremely uh, filled up with love, and I hope every single person on this line is as well. And, you know, listen, there's a lot that we get to do in the world. You know, there gets to be policy change. There gets to be structure changes. So much is shifting at this time. But one thing every single one of us can do is we can look inside and change our minds, our hearts, and we can have a little more love and compassion for ourselves, our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, and we can also choose to be a mentor and give back. There are so many organizations locally and globally where we can all make a difference for somebody. We can be a mentor. We can be a guide. We can be a friend. Right. So here in Chicago, you know, we have Europe, we have big brothers, big sisters, boys and girls club, off the street club. I grow Chicago in LA. There's a place called home, Casa. There's so many places to get involved with. My encouragement for every listener is to do something this week to reach out and be a mentor. My experience of giving back and choosing to be a mentor for others has filled me with far more love, gratitude, and wisdom than I could have ever given. And so that's my encouragement for everyone this week. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast with people that I think are just incredible human beings. Uh, get out there, get active, and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please share this episode and DM us. We'd love to interact with you about all you learn and create from this. If you love this podcast, please go ahead and subscribe to get real-time updates when all new episodes go live. And if you can, please leave us a review. It will help us grow our community and our message to support more leaders on their growth journey. If you want to continue to hang out with me, follow me on Instagram at Laura E. Holloway and subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lauraeholloway.com for weekly downloads, blogs, upcoming workshops, events, and more. Stay aligned and make your move. I'll see you next week.